This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 131. This is a special episode about running legend Tom Osler of New Jersey, who passed away this week at the age of 82. He made a deep impact on ultra running over many decades. And now a word from our sponsors. My third book in the Ultra Running History series is scheduled to be released on Amazon during the first week of April, before I get my other knee replaced. For those curious, it has been seven weeks after my right knee was replaced, and I rode 12 miles on my bike today with very little pain. So far, so good. This new book, entitled Strange Running Tales, When Running Was a Reality Show, will have many amazing head-scratching true running stories from the 19th century, including the good, bad, and ugly. Support this podcast and Ultra Running History by buying your copy on Amazon. Tom Osler of Camden, New Jersey, was a mathematician, former national champion, distance runner, and author. His published running training theories have made a deep impact on distance running for multiple generations. His book, Serious Runner's Handbook, became a classic book on running. He was the first to verbalize in a way that was really understandable to most athletes. Runner's World wrote, Tom Osler was among those who helped push and pull America toward the running mania of the 1970s. His pioneer 1976 24-hour run in New Jersey brought renewed focus on the 24-hour run in America. He won multiple national championships and was inducted into the Road Runners Club of America Hall of Fame. During his running career, he ran in more than 2,100 races of various distances. Of his youth, he said, I was a sickly little kid at 12 or 13 and didn't have many friends. This annoyed me, so I decided to leap headfirst into every sport there was. I was terrible. I came home night after night looking like an ad for the Blue Cross. Osler was an excellent student, but purposely lowered his grades for a while in order to fit in as a, quote, regular guy. He said, One day, a bunch of us decided to see who could run the most around a field, and to my shock, I could outjog everybody. So that's when I realized I was born to be a runner. His gang in his neighborhood picked distance running as that day's form of athletic torture. He jumped in headfirst and started to run. He learned about track from his brother-in-law and discovered that there were races of a mile and further. He also learned about the current local running hero and Olympian, Browning Ross. I read in the newspaper that there was going to be this big race in Atlantic City the National 30-Kilometer Championship. I got myself a bus ticket and went down there and stood in front of Steel Pier and waited for this race. I remembered thinking that runners must be very powerful people, big muscles, well-developed, like Mr. Atlas. And what shows up but all these skinny people? Browning Ross showed up, and I couldn't believe what a small, rather insignificant-looking human being this hero of mine that I've read so much about was. 
Someone asked Osler to hold the string at the finish line as Ross won the race and he got into the finishing picture. When he was 14 years old, he had dreams that he would be the first person to break the four-minute mile. He did a test mile run and finished in six hours, 30 minutes. In 1954, England's Roger Bannister was the first to break the four-minute mile, and Osler's dream was crushed. He started to train hard and at Camden High School was on the track team. His best mile was 4 hours 54 minutes, which was disappointing to him, but he was one of the best high school milers in Camden. He finished his first marathon when he was 16 years old with a time of 3.27. Camden High did not have a cross-country team, and I asked my coach, Nathan Enton, if he would start a team, and he did. Coach is the wrong word for these people. He really didn't coach. He organized. He made sure we had shorts and shoes, made sure we got on the bus. He really never told us what to do. The coach would come out with his dog, walk his dog around the field, and just let me do whatever I wanted. Early on, Osler was pretty much self-taught, using things he read. I had read that runners should keep a steady pace. I would run at a steady pace, and the coach would go nuts. He would see the race start, and all of a sudden, I'm last and everybody's running away from me. And later, I'm catching them. So the coach came up to me before a race and said, Look, this is not the way to do it. They are getting so far ahead of you, and then you have to go catch them. Stay with them, and then you won't have to catch them. It makes sense to somebody who doesn't run. I tried to explain to him that all that will do is make me tired right away, instead of later stages. He didn't understand why I wouldn't do it. When Osler was 17 years old, he obtained a seasoned running mentor, Jack Berry, from, from Merchantville, New Jersey, who competed against very elite runners such as Browning Ross and Ted Corbett. When I met him, Jack Berry was 32 at his peak. He was the third and fourth best marathoner in the country. I owe him a lot. He taught me a lot. He didn't like losing. Osler's father was a plumbing contractor and sacrificed to make sure Tom went to college. In 1957, he went to Drexel Institute of Technology in Philadelphia, where he studied physics and won many academic awards. Osler loved running and found time during his busy college life to become deeply involved with road running as well. In 1959, Browning Ross invited Tom Osler to go to New York City to witness the National Indoor Track Meet at Madison Square Garden. Osler remembered, As a sideshow, Browning had asked representatives from other districts to get together before the meet to talk about starting the Roadrunners Club, RRC. We went to the Paramount Hotel to meet. It lasted an hour and we decided to start this club. Osler became the first co-secretary of the RRC. He raced multiple times a month in many shorter races put on by Ross in Philadelphia and throughout New Jersey. Osler was asked about running shoes used in the 1950s and 1960s. There weren't any that you could buy in the store. The most common shoes that you would see for running were the Converse cross-country shoe. It had a negative heel which is why Browning had such bad Achilles tendonitis. 
the real serious runners like Jack Berry would write to Europe or Japan and have their shoes handmade. Then Barry caught on to the idea that hush puppy shoes would be good in a race. Then I picked it up from him. At the time, you only ran in a proper athletic setting. You ran in a park or on a track. You certainly never ran in the streets. If you did, you were stared at by everybody. Yes, he ran on the roads. Other runners would ask me, how did you stand the ridicule? My answer was that I simply ignored it. For his first six years of serious running, he raced at every opportunity. But overtraining started to plague him. I had a sciatic nerve condition that left me unable to walk. I still remember going out to train and going so slowly due to hip pain that even the dogs looked at me puzzled. They couldn't decide if I was running or not and were confused as to whether to chase me. I soon figured out that rest and healing was just as important as training. In 1963, after reading Running to the Top by Arthur Lediard, he adopted the method of slow training and took his first giant leap forward. He started to run steady miles, often reaching 70 to 75 miles a week, much of it on the road. As he coached himself, some wins started to come, and he finished the 1964 Boston Marathon in 2 hours 47 minutes. Frequently, he was stopped and questioned by police while running, thinking he was running to try to get away after doing some crime. Once, he was even pulled into a patrol car. He popped out of his car like a jack-in-the-box and tackled me. Are you detaining me? Is that what we're doing? Absolutely. Oh, don't grab me. Before I knew what was happening, I was in the car beside him. Osler became lifelong friends with future ultra-running legend Ed Dodd in the early 1960s when Dodd was still in high school. They would do long training runs together. In 1965, at the age of 25, Osler was, quote, beaten soundly by Dodd, age 19, who became captain of the St. Joseph University cross-country team. This increased Osler's motivation, and he said, The old competitive zeal was put into high gear. He raced nearly every weekend and won about 30 races in 1965 for distances from 3 to 15 miles, both on roads and cross-country. In 1966, Osler became a math instructor at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and continued his prolific racing and winning. In 1967, he set his marathon personal best at Boston, finishing 16th with a time of 2 hours 29 minutes. In 1967, Osler was inspired by Ted Corbett to give ultramarathons a try. He began doing 50-mile training runs from Collingwood to Atlantic City, New Jersey. Confident that he could do well, he began preparing to run in the 50-mile national championship to be held in November 1967. He ran every afternoon after classes covering 75 to 80 miles a week and averaging 7.5-minute miles. The first modern-era American 50-mile championship was held in Poughkeepsie, New York. There were 13 starters, including legendary and future 100-mile world record holder John Tarrant, the ghost runner who came from England to run. See episode 63. On race day, Osler, age 27, took control of the 50-miler early and even led Tarrant. 
The last 40 miles were run in a steady downpour of freezing rain. I felt perfect for the first 41 miles, like I had just started. Then a slow weariness set in. It got worse as I went along. It was cold, but my main worry was that it might freeze. Osler won in 5 hours 52 minutes, beating Tarrant by about 10 minutes. The 50-miler took a toll on Osler. His legs were stiff and tired for several weeks after that, and he did not like feeling so shattered. I felt sick and weak. I became gun-shy and did not enter another 50-miler until 1974. In 1967, Osler privately published 2,000 copies of a 29-page training guide booklet entitled The Conditioning of Distance Runners. At the time, too often, elite runners held on to the secrets they learned about excelling in competition, and Osler wanted to spread the word of many of the things that he had learned about running. He said, At the time, the only monthly publication was the Long Distance Log, published by Browning Ross. It had about 200 subscribers, it had been in existence for 12 years, and had lost money every year. I had a friend who was a runner and a printer. He told me that if I could get my book typed up, he'd print 2,000 copies for $200. I sold 200 copies. I was afraid of losing my amateur status. As soon as I broke even, I took all my boxes of books, drove them to Browning Ross's house, and left them on his porch. He wasn't even home. I left a note saying, These are yours, Browning. Use them for the log. Excerpts of the booklet were later published in Runner's World in 1984. The magazine stated, Hustler's Guide helped sweep American running in the 1970s when Frank Shorter and other forces took over. From today's perspective, conditioning is both amusing and amazing. It's amusing because Osler foresaw the growth of distance running, but he could never have predicted that running would lose its simplicity. Conditioning is amazing that for the number of times and ways in which it simply is right on the mark. It indeed was trailblazing, and it is still referred to decades later. This would be the first of several books he authored on running training theory and practices. He endorsed the long, easy training runs to establish a long-lasting base, and then added speed-sharpening training. Running in frequent races was an important part of his training. His second book, published in 1978, Serious Runner's Handbook, sold more than 55,000 copies. Browning Ross called it the best running book. Osler said, When I wrote the second book, I felt conditioning of distance runners had been like a skeleton. It described the essence of the ideas behind training, but didn't go into details. Things like dealing with different kind of weather and all the things you run into as a runner. So I thought I would expand on that, and that was Serious Runner's Handbook. Plus, I had experience with ultramarathons, which I hadn't had when I wrote Conditioning. He later was a strong advocate of the value of walking and training and running on soft surfaces like trails rather than roads. The impact of Osler's books had a significant impact on ultra runners. Gary Cantrell, a.k.a. Laz, wrote, 
His revolutionary ideas about incorporating some walking opened up new horizons for me. I was pretty well stuck on how to get past 50 miles because that was as far as I could run without having to walk. It sounds strange now, but at the time, I thought if you had to walk, you might as well stop. Hall of Famer Kevin Setness added, I too referenced Tom's early writings and used it to better myself for distances longer than 100k, specifically the run-walk strategy. In 1976, at the age of 36, Osler wanted to prove out his running-walking theory by running 100 miles on the track at Glassboro State College where he was teaching. He decided to do a 24-hour run on the outdoor quarter-mile track. I decided on a ratio of 7 laps running to 1 lap of walking. I wanted to stay fresh and feel good for the entire day. Osler had never run further than 60 miles in races or training, so he was interested to find out if he could reach 100 miles with a walk-running mixture. I'm not trying to break any speed records. In this kind of race, you can slow down, stop to eat or drink, or even take a nap. But you don't go too far if you nap. Osler did not sleep at all the night before. He couldn't wait to get on the track. He started at 5 a.m. on the cold, clear December morning. It was about 20 degrees. He wore a hat, gloves, and ski pajamas to cover his legs. Several friends started with him and ran portions of the distance through the day, including this college president. Gradually, the light of dawn spread over the cinder track. I have thought before the run of the great beauty of watching the sun rise and set, and the night close in darkly while the running went ever on. I did my best to relax and stay fresh. Osler reached 50 miles in 8 hours, 8 minutes, feeling good. The sun set at the 70-mile mark. Many students arrived to run with him. At 80 miles, I began to grow weary. For the first time, I was no longer comfortable. I really wanted to stop and take a rest, but I thought it unwise. He recovered at 95 miles and finished strong, reaching 100 miles in 18 hours, 19 minutes. The college president and reporters were there to offer congratulations. He stopped for a rest and a warm spaghetti dinner and a 10-minute nap. After the break, he couldn't get himself to run at all and proceeded to walk for the remaining time, covering 114 miles before he was done. He was delighted to discover that his post-race recovery produced no leg stiffness. Corbett told him that it was because of his frequent walks. I now knew how the great pedestrians of the past century had achieved seemingly impossible mileage. During late 1977, Ed Dodd came in possession of an old, dusty scrapbook filled with news clippings about pedestrian ultra events held in the Philadelphia area from 1899 to 1903. The scrapbook that would greatly impact the re-establishment of modern-era multi-day ultras and 100-milers was compiled by a pedestrian from the Philadelphia area. In 1958, this aged, dying man had no heirs or friends to pass his carefully compiled treasure to. While a patient at Temple University Hospital, a kind medical student intern, would sit and talk with this man about his professional running career at the turn of the century. The old man decided to give his treasure to this intern, Vernon Ordway. Vernon Ordway was from Bradford, Pennsylvania. 
He had received a degree from Princeton University where he was a top runner on the cross-country team. He went on to attend Temple University Medical School, worked as an intern in the hospital, and was an elite marathoner. He graciously accepted the scrapbook gift. He then passed it on to Browning Ross, who gave it to future ultra-runner Tom Osler. In 1977, Osler showed the scrapbook to Dodd. Somewhere along the line, Browning gave it to Tom. Tom said, hey, look at this. You know, we're doing these ultra things. Do you believe they would run, you know, six-day races and it was all inside? Fascinated by this history that included indoor races in smoke-filled arenas, Dodd decided to research the early sport deeper. Tom wasn't much of a library guy. So I would go into the microfilm and microfiche and the uh, New York Times and Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly. And so they took it all the way back into the 1870s and 80s. There would be trips to Philadelphia Public Library, New York City Public Library, Library of Congress. Got a lot of good stuff at the Library of Congress. They spent hour after hour discussing the incredible achievements of pedestrians. From these talks came a feel for and an understanding of what it was to be a pedestrian and a desire to share this knowledge. Dodd and Osler believed they had enough content to write a book, so Dodd went to work compiling the history of pedestrianism for the first half of the book, and Osler wrote the second half of the book covering the art of the ultramarathoner. Regarding Osler's section, he explained, the marathon can be very fatiguing, but when properly executed, ultras can be far less tiring than standard marathons. This apparent contradiction is resolved when the runner learns that the art of mixing gently paced running with walking, the major new skill that the marathoner must acquire. In 1979, Dodd and Osler published their book, Ultra Marathoning, The Next Challenge, a classic must-read book. Ultra-running legend David Horton wrote, That was the first book on the ultra-marathon that I bought and read the early Bible of ultra-running. Laurie Staten, among the first two to finish Wasatch Front 100, wrote, This was the first ultra-running book I read, and it still is right up here on my bookshelf. The authors gave me permission to digitize and preserve this book on ultrarunninghistory.com, making it available to download for free. See the article of this episode for the link. In addition, with a PhD received in mathematics in 1970, Osler published more than 150 papers on mathematics and physics. Osler ran 100 miles again at the 1978 Ford Mead 100 and won with 16 hours and 11 minutes. He went on to run and race competitively for the next couple of decades. In 1980, Osler was inducted into the Roadrunners Club of America Hall of Fame. Looking back on ultras, Osler wrote, Since 1974, I have run in numerous 50-milers, three 24-hour runs, 200-milers as well as one 200-mile effort in 70 hours. In 2001, Osler was awarded South Jersey's Atlantic Club's Browning Ross Award. Ted Corbett, the father of American Ultra Running, wrote at that time, Tom Osler is a unique individual in terms of his nearly maximizing his potential talents as a long-distance runner, and in the area of his scholastic successes, 
Tom Osler is also a nice down-to-earth human being with a good awareness of our society, a guy we are comfortable being around. There are those among us who watched in amazement as Tom Osler blossomed and emerged dramatically out of the pack to become an all-conquering champion runner. In 2003, Osler suffered a stroke, but recovered. Two years later, he had another serious artery blockage that made him decide to retire from serious racing, but he did start walking and running again. By 2011, Osler had run an estimated 90,000 miles and run in more than 2,000 races. He continued to run in a race nearly every week until he fell and broke his hip, which was replaced in 2017, requiring him to stop running. Dodd asked if Osler thought about retiring from teaching. His reply was, Why would I retire? I love teaching. The students make me feel young. I come out of class feeling better than when I went in. I will teach as long as I physically am able. I can think of nothing better than to die teaching, especially since I won't have to clean out my office. In 2020, Osler was 80 years old and still teaching math at Rowan University with a teaching career of more than 54 years. When asked why he ran, he replied, Running offers both pleasure and pain. There is nothing like the perfection of the soul through running. Running helps you connect with what is important in your soul. Ed Dodd wrote of Osler, He had the greatest influence on my own running career of anybody I know. Tom has been extremely giving of his time and advice and has been a mentor to many, many runners in our area through the years. Some of the most enjoyable times of my life were spent on Sundays taking long runs with Tom. Tom Osler passed away on March 26, 2023 at the age of 82. His wife, Kathy Richter Osler, preceded him in death. He was survived by sons Eric and William, grandsons Zachary and Gabriel, and a great-granddaughter Zoe. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>